first. This is not good news. Paris Swain, Liberty Writers News, has been officially accepted. North Korean state-run radio and news agency reported moments ago that North Korea will turn off the heat and warned they would carry out. Good morning, church. We're back to another uh, conversation about the simple truth. And I'm grateful for the ways that your groups have been engaging this material, these conversations about truth. It's such a necessary topic in our culture, but we've been looking at it even a, a step deeper, I think, than most of the conversation around truth in our culture. Instead of it just being something that we sign off on or that we agree to a list of doctrinal statements, what we've said is that the truth, what we truly believe is found in our actions. It's found more truly through our calendar and our bank account, our beliefs, than what we say sometimes. And so today I want to continue that conversation. We're going to talk about what it is that unites us in a world that divides us. And we are a divided culture right now, aren't we? See it all around. And I may not have perspective of centuries or even all that many decades to see the impact of this uh, time versus previous times. But I, I think it's safe to say that today we are in a divided time. And as people who are called to be peacemakers, uniters in the midst of that division, I, I want to look at some of the resources that provide us a chance to be just that, because we are called to make peace in times like this. And so this morning, I want to start by looking at uh, the book of Genesis. I want to look at an ancient effort at unity in a divided culture that happened centuries ago. I think we can learn some things through this story, and then we'll, we'll move forward to talk more about our topic of truth this morning. Uh, so open with me, if you would, to Genesis Chapter 11, Genesis 11, story of the Tower of Babel. But before we get to reading this story, I want to start by just kind of recapping verses, chapters 1 through 10. Genesis begins with a story about God creating the world and he calls it good. But as the story goes on, uh, there is division. Uh, brother kills brother. We see stories about uh, God really trying to start over all over again with the flood, washing the earth clean and starting again with Noah and his family. These are efforts at unity in the midst of a divisive time, but division just keeps resulting. Violence increases on the earth. But it starts to look in chapter 11 like things are finally coming together after all this division. I want to start reading and pick up in verse 1, Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Do you notice the details there in, in, in verse 3? Maybe something you just read over, but I want us to pay a little more attention this time. This is a, an advance in human culture that we're seeing happening in Genesis chapter 11. Have you ever tried to build something with stones before? It's a little bit of a hardship, right? I mean, they're, they're shaped differently. They're smooth, and they're hard to stack on top of one another. It's really hard to build something big with stones. But this, this is a story about bricks. And that's a technological advancement, isn't it? All of a sudden, instead of stones having to be stacked on top of one another to create a fortress or defense in some way, now what we're seeing is a technological invention of the brick. And when bricks, you can form them the same way. You can begin to build larger structures, and you ask a new set of questions with this new technology. You start to ask, well, what are the limits of this technology? What is it possible that we could build? How large could our structures get? And sure enough, those are the questions they're asking in Genesis 11. Well, maybe we can build cities a little bigger. Maybe we ought to build a tower to the heavens. We read about that in just a moment. This is a story about technology. 
Among other things, uh, you know, someone invented something new in this story. Someone fit things together in a certain way. And not only that, there's mortar here, which means you can cement, you can put these things together. Does this sound familiar at all? A world that tries to create unity through technology? And yet the question in our world, I think, is, has it worked? I mean, the last few decades, amazing technological advancement, right? You think about the internet and what it's brought to our world. In some ways, it's united the world. It's, it's flattened the world. It's made the world a more global place. But I think we can all admit it hasn't united us. Still a lot of division. In fact, this new technology has brought more division in some ways. It's changed the world, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. So I think it's clear that technology doesn't exactly unite us. And that's what we find in the rest of the story as we keep reading in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city. I love that detail. This great tall tower God has to go down to see, right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered from there all, them, from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the whole earth. They came together with new technology. They ended up scattered and divided. There's a parable for 21st century. This might be it. I want to say more about this in just a moment, but I want to give us hope. Because even though technology failed them, there are other things that brought them together. We're going to look at that today. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. God, we, uh, we ask today that in the midst of our advancement, in the midst of continuing through science and education to move forward and to try to unite through our human means. We confess that's not possible, God. We can't engineer unity. And we need your movement into our world, God, to bring together what, what we can't do on our own. And so, God, we ask that. Even this morning, we ask and pray that you would come here and that you would speak a word into our hearts and our lives that we might leave as more committed disciples of yours. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, in Genesis 11, we see that God scatters people all over the earth with different languages. And these people remain divided until a story that pops up in the New Testament. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. This is a chapter that our churches have known pretty well. It's Acts chapter 2. Again, divided by language, but God does something in Acts chapter 2 that I think should provide hope for us in this day and in this age. You see, the story comes after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus has told the disciples, hey, just wait, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come on you. And then I'm going to send you out as witnesses all over the world. Well, look what happens in Acts chapter 2 is this Holy Spirit comes down on the people. It's amazing. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those, these who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that we, each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Pam, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What is this story about in Acts chapter 2, the first few verses? I would say it's about a lot of things. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise that we talked about last week, that the Holy Spirit would come down and would gift believers. It's also the beginning of the early church that gets started here, as we'll read on in just a moment. It's an amazing story in Acts chapter 2 that that is perhaps the most important chapter for many of us as we grew up hearing about baptism, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's even bigger than all that. Acts 2 is the answer to Genesis 11 and the story of Babel. You see the kind of play between these stories, right? In Genesis 11, they're all together with one voice and they're building this name for themselves and God spreads them out, confuses their language. That's why it's called Babel. But in in Acts chapter 2, what he does is he takes all these people that have been separated and dispersed and he brings them back together and they're all able to understand even though they're all speaking as Galileans. At Babel, everyone speaks the same language and, uh, until God confuses their language. And now God's doing the miracle of bringing them back together and uniting them despite their difference. It's, it's an origin story, I think, that explains uh, the different languages and cultures that we have. But Acts chapter 2, this is a different story. Pentecost is being unraveled by the Holy Spirit of God. Amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine being there in that moment? And this is what the Spirit of God does. Where there's division, where there's discord, where languages or communication's hard to come by, God brings those things together and does the unthinkable. The Spirit of God provides unity where the world knows not how to bring it. And after a miraculous moment in Acts chapter 2, another miracle happens. Peter preaches, if you can believe it. A powerful sermon. Now remember Peter. Peter's the one who... Jesus called him Satan a few chapters before when he didn't understand that he was going to have to go die, Jesus. And, and then a few chapters later, at Jesus' moment of greatest need, he denies Jesus three times. This is Peter who fails over and over again. But in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God does this incredible work in Peter, and Peter brings a message to the people. I want you to hear the message that he brings. It's a convicting message. It convicts their hearts. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Great message, right? He starts off and he says, hey, you remember this Jesus that was brought into the world? He did wonders and signs and miracles. You remember those things? Well, you killed him with the help of wicked men. But don't worry. God had it all in plan because he was going to raise him from the dead because death cannot keep its hold on Jesus. It's a great message. And he sums it up again in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, again, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And they hear this message. They know that their guilt is there. They know that they weren't the ones to step up in that moment. They had him killed. And they're cut to the heart. And their response to 
to Peter is, Peter, what do we do? We, we, we see what we've done. We know we're in the wrong. What do we do in response to this? And this is what Peter preaches in verse 38 and 39. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Have you ever been caught before? And you've wondered, how do I restore that? How do I make this better? How do I keep bring relationship back together? You know you're in the wrong. These people have had that experience. And Peter's response is, look, you need to repent. You need to turn your life around from the way it's directed. You need to be baptized into Jesus' name. And this Holy Spirit, this gift is going to come down on you. It's going to be amazing. What you've just seen, these miraculous things, that spirit isn't just something out there that animates languages to come together. That spirit is promised to you, not just you though, to your children and to all those who are far off. In other words, it's a promise for us. We talked about this last week, right? Spirit indwells those who've been baptized into Jesus' name. That includes us. Isn't that an amazing gift? So what is it that unites people in the midst of the division that's there? In Acts chapter 2, what we see is the only hope for unity in the midst of division is not technology. It's not our own ingenuity to bring things back together with perfect conflict resolution skills. What brings us together is the Holy Spirit of God that comes and does a work that we can't do as humans. And yes, there's a response that we have. We, We repent and we respond, but this shouldn't come as a surprise, should it, this story about baptism. It's really what the simple truth is about this morning, is about that moment that we all make this public confession, this public commitment to others of baptism. It's a moment that we mark in time that we've given ourselves to Jesus. And if you're the Jewish people and you hear about this whole baptism thing, well, they might go back to John baptizing in the desert in the wilderness, but go back even further than that. The most important story in the Old Testament is what? Exodus story, right? How did God save the people in the Exodus? He took them through the middle of the sea. It was the first baptism of sorts, wasn't it? It was Israel's baptism. They're in bondage, they're in slavery, and God frees them. He liberates them through the sea into the promised land that he's going to give to them to come. And isn't that our story, right? We've all experienced bondage. or We haven't been free as we should be. We're enslaved by sin. We, we struggle, right? And, and what God does in baptism is he walks us, he liberates us from the enemy, and he, he frees us to new grounds and new land to a new day ahead. But it's not just the Exodus story. There's a new story that's being represented 3,000 different times on this day in, on, on Pentecost, right? 3,000 times. Think about that. They're remembering the, the Red Sea story, but they're also remembering a new story, the most important story in the New Testament, the story of Jesus. Every time we see that reenactment, you've seen it dozens of times, many of you, right? Of baptism, of people going into the water and coming up. It's, it also reminds us of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? It's our own living into the story of Jesus. So every time there's a baptism, it's that reenactment. It's that reminder. Isn't that powerful? We have this symbol that ties us back to the story all the way back. And 3,000 times that day, they got reminded of what God does over and over again. And many of you have seen that story rehearsed. I've experienced that. And I, I think many of you can remember back maybe to that moment. Maybe some of you haven't made that decision yet, but I want to tell you, it's a, it's a powerful moment for me. I remember being 13 years old and my, my dad baptizing me. I still remember the faces that were around that baptistry. There were friends and family and church members who, who saw that commitment in my life. And it was an incredible moment. It was a moment where I was dying to my old self and I was coming to new life. I got to tell you, the main reason I got baptized is I wanted to be with God forever. I wanted to be assured of where I would end up after death. I, I, I wanted that to be sure, and I felt that comfort, that sense of security that 
Now I know where I am going to be for eternity. But I've grown in my understanding of baptism. It's so much that. It still is the eternal reward that God gives. But I want to tell you, I didn't realize. In fact, I think I had a naivete about me about what that would mean for my life before death. I don't think I fully understood what the cost was going to be this side of eternity. I wish someone had actually said more to me years ago. To say, this isn't just about what happens after you die. This is, this is going to radically alter everything on this side of the grave. So today, what I want to talk about, I want to assure us of the eternal rewards of, of salvation. But I want to make sure everyone gets a chance also to hear about the, the cost that we take up. In some ways, I wish my parents had tried to argue me out of baptism. Not because I didn't need to do it or because it wasn't important, but just to make sure I understood this is what it means to be baptized. This is the cost that's there. So this morning, I want to proclaim this word boldly to assure us of what God gives us after death, but also to challenge us about what it means before death. So listen to Paul a couple times in the, the New Testament talk about baptism. First place I want to go is Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what, what Paul writes to the church at Rome. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. Paul's given the same imagery again, right? Just like Israel dies to their old life in Egypt and they're raised to new life through the Red Sea. Just like Jesus died and he was raised to new life and. Uh, in, in his own story, we experience the same things. We die to who we were. That, that old person, all those sins, God distances those sins from us and we're made new. And, and that, that's an old person. That's no longer who Colin is that day I made that decision. But we're also raised to new life. There's hope about life ahead. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians something similar about that new life. This is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. For our, let's see, that's Chapter four, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is what baptism means is there's an old life that's done away with. That's not who you are. New creation is coming forth into the world. And as new creations, everything changes. Every allegiance, every tribe, every indicator that tells us who we were before baptism is now reinterpreted. All those are made secondary to our commitment to being a child of God. I didn't remember this or understand this when I was baptized. I've learned it since then. And all of us grow in our understanding, right? I think it's important for us to see that I hope 10 years from now, I know more than I even do today than about what my baptism meant. But I want to continue to push us toward this. A simple truth this morning, number six is this. Baptism unites us where the world divides us. Baptism unites us where the world divides us. For me, this simple truth of baptism was mostly about what happened after life, as I've said, after, after I die. But this understanding reshapes everything about our world because we need to be united in the midst of our division. I think the, the secret lies, actually, in this ancient practice of baptism. Let me turn with, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. This is really where I want to hammer down and spend time for the rest of the sermon this morning. Just three verses, but they're revolutionary verses. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. Listen to Paul's words talking about this shift and, and what the, how our priorities change, how everything changes in this moment. It says there, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No one pointed that verse out to me before I was baptized. I remember Romans. I remember some other passages. I don't remember this one. I think it's important. In fact, read it, with, read it again. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse is more subversive than you can even imagine in that original context it was written to. In fact, there was a Jewish prayer that all Jewish men or majority of them would have read every single morning when they got up. And it's a little shocking by modern ears, but this is important to understand the context of Galatians chapter three and what Paul's really saying. Listen to this prayer that would have been said. We, we know this goes back at least to 150 AD, um, but it could go back all the way to at least Paul's time. And I think it would represent the perspective of the Jewish world at that time. Blessed are you, God of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, who has not made me a slave, who has not made me a woman. That's shocking to modern sensibilities, isn't it? To to think that your father might pray that every morning and you would overhear that. Think that that you might pray that. That's That's a different prayer than 21st century world, isn't it? But I want you to understand this because I want to read again what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 because he's trying to subversively counter the world that he's speaking into in ways that I don't think we fully pick up on. Let me read this again, Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, been clothed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is intentionally countering the beliefs of his time. He's saying no matter what you identified yourself as before you were baptized into Christ, those are secondary concerns compared to the kingdom of God that you are now in. This is radical stuff. And this is the kind of belief that could change our world today, couldn't it? We're divided up in so many ways. We're divided by race. We're divided by gender. We're divided by class. We're divided by political philosophy. We're divided by denomination. We're divided by our interpretation of scripture. We're divided by country lines even. But whether you realize it or not, when you were baptized, you died to every distinction that you held on to. And you were brought forth to new life as a child of the living God. That becomes the most important identifier of who you are. If someone asks who you are, you can identify yourself a lot of ways, but what matters for us who've been baptized into Christ is I'm a child of God, and that should be enough to tell everyone what's most important. Every identifier that defined you before your baptism became secondary to your primary commitment to being a child of God. I didn't have an understanding of this when I came out of the water. Paul is saying that the waters of baptism are thicker than blood, your family line, your DNA. The waters of baptism identify you more than any flag represents you, more than any skin color you're wrapped in, more than the political party you support, more than the religious affiliation you hold. In baptism, we die to every old identifier. And we are raised to life with a new identification of child of God. In the end, unity and peace will not come from becoming entrenched in all those old identities we associated with. If your political party gets in power, it's not going to unite the world. 
Technology comes forth and is advanced. It's not going to unite the world. We saw that in Genesis 11. Peace will not be found through any lesser tribe or allegiance. At Pentecost, unity comes because the Holy Spirit of God comes down and transforms their identity completely. So here's the question I want you to grapple with in your groups this week as you get together, several of them. How am I failing? How am I not yet living up to my baptismal vow? What I committed to in baptism, how how am I not yet fully turned over to that? Number two, what who do I still need to die? What do I still need to die to in my own life? What what needs to be dead in the waters before we're raised up to new life? And and then what allegiances are still more primary to me than my allegiance to Jesus? And I want those same questions to be asked about our church as we press into this faithfully as a community. How are we failing to live out the truths of our baptisms as a community? What do we still need to die to? What would be the next step of faithfulness when it comes to race and class and gender at Greenville Oaks? You know, recently I had a realization that I just can't get out of my head about culture. Because growing up, I I was always taught to fear culture and that culture is going to take the church in the wrong direction if we allow it to infect it. And so I'm going to talk more about this next week. But I grew up in Southern California after the Dust Bowl era. And a lot of those churches moved out during the Dust Bowl and they they just kind of circled the wagons. They protected themselves against the larger culture so their kids wouldn't be infected, but really it it impacted their mission because they weren't able to touch the world around them. And when I think about that, I think about my own life, that sometimes we've barred ourselves from culture, and so that's that's all bad, and we've got to protect ourselves here. But what I've discovered when it comes to, to Galatians 3 is that the church has has the church been leading the way when it comes to culture change, or is the culture Have we been following the lead of culture? When it comes to Galatians 3, hear me. Which one is leading the way toward greater faithfulness toward our baptismal commitments? Was the church leading the way to the abolition movement? Well, the answer is yes and no, right? Of course the church has been involved in social movement and change to free people from bondage of slavery. We we can call out Christians that were there along the way. Churches were there that that condemned slavery, but there were churches along the way that didn't, right? They propped up slavery. In reality, there were Christians who should have been involved in a different way to name injustice. And it was actually the culture that forced the church to evolve in many ways around this. The same is true for the race conversation. Race was a huge issue in the early church. There was this huge divide between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is walking into these churches. And what he doesn't say is, hey, set up two churches and just just meet where it's easier with you, right? You know, he says, we're trying to get this group together. You can't be separate. The gospel calls for us all to be reconciled. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And so Paul's fighting this. He's, He's working all of his life. And it seems like he ends his life of failure because so many of these churches just can't seem to get past this. Galatians 2. Paul writes, and he he writes to Peter, and he talks about calling Peter out because Peter's fallen into racist habits. He had a vision that said that Gentiles are included, but in Galatians 2, he's back to eating only with the Jewish people, and he won't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out and says, this cannot happen, Peter. You had three visions. How can you not know? Over 50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. claimed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning was the most segregated hour of our week, and that was true, and that is true. He was right. A church in America is considered multiracial if 20% of its population is not the majority race in that church. It's a pretty low standard if you think about it. 20%, any other race, right? 
You know the number of American Protestant churches that meet that standard? 14% of American Protestant churches. If our churches cannot learn to break the color barrier, what hope is there for our country to move past these things? The culture, unfortunately, has been ahead of the church in leading us to faithfulness when it comes to this passage in Galatians 3. And it ought to be the other way around, shouldn't it? We should be the leaders of culture moving in this direction. The same is true when it comes to conversations around gender. It was the culture that forced the church to come to grips with Paul's words in Galatians 3 and continues to. When it comes to this passage, the church has not been leading the way. The church has been following the call of culture of all things, to be more faithful to the very call that Paul gave us in Galatians chapter 3. So think about it. If we take our baptism seriously, what is it that needs to change? What difference did the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus make in your own life? How, how are you still challenged to live up to the baptismal vows that you made that you may still be coming awake to in your own life? The answer to division in our country is baptism. Now, that may seem pretty simplistic, right? Baptism? Yes, we want more people to come to a knowledge of the faith. I long to see more come with revival, to give their lives to Jesus. I would love nothing more than that. But it's going to start with people who have been baptized, living up to the commitments they made years ago, living up to the call of all that that means in our lives. When you were baptized, you died. The old you is gone. Your new commitments and allegiances lie with the kingdom of God. When you were baptized, the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of you. When you were baptized, your, your class and your race and your gender and your political party and your tribe, all of that became secondary to your primary commitment to the kingdom of God. When you were baptized, you became one with billions of people across the world and across history who've called Jesus Lord. This is what the world needs to see in this season. They need to see churches that are willing to push back against all those things that divide us in our world, to live up to the callings that we've committed to, to live into the words of Paul who said, when you've been baptized into Christ, you're clothed with a new identity. Your identity is first here. It is not in all those lesser tribes and lesser things that used to identify you so clearly. It's hard to say something like that on a Sunday after Texas OU weekend after it happened, right? But, but even there, my commitment lies with brothers and sisters who are Sooners. We have these commitments, right? And it's amazing in our world how small these things can be and how hard these things can be. It's easier to talk about sports sometimes, isn't it? But God's call is for the church to be this shining beacon, this light that looks so diverse, that people look at us and they wonder, how in the world could those people ever get together? And the reason that we can tell them is because it's because of Jesus and our baptisms. We're living up to it. That's my prayer for us, church. Would we lean forward into that? We're going to discuss that, that in these groups this week. If we take our baptism seriously, what is it that has to change? Let's pray together as we close today. Our God, our Father, we... Uh, we thank you for this story. We thank you for stories about technology that lie centuries in the past that seem ancient and have nothing to do with the modern context, but what we find is they're so relevant. Because God, we're trying all kinds of ways to 
to learn to agree and unite. And God, it is impossible to do that without your spirit that lives within us. So God, in the midst of our world as it is, I pray for a new Acts 2 moment. A moment where we wouldn't be divided by communication barriers, but a moment where you bring us together in the midst of all the confusion and the division and, and, and the sin of our past, God. And you somehow create and build a new humanity in the midst of it. God, I thank you for the gift of baptism and how it orients us to a life of liberation from Egypt, God, a life of liberation from our bondage to decay, a life of liberation from our master of sin. And, and you make us slaves to righteousness. You free us to be new creations and to live into your new humanity. God, we know one day in heaven that it's not going to be so hard because we'll all be together with all people of all tribes and tongues and languages. And God, even now, I pray that we can manifest that reality in our presence. That We can learn to live as we will one day in the future, that we can be a sign of the future. We can be a foretaste for people to get a taste of what heaven will one day be like. God, may it be so among us. May we live up to the baptisms that we've been a part of. And God, for those who may want to make that decision, even today, God, would would you use this baptism uh, in all of our lives, God, to change us and to call us to faithfulness. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.